This is episode three of the Flying Sign with Joe Clady. Thank you again for uh, for coming in and checking me out for the third time. Hopefully, uh, today I have Travis Holtman on the podcast. He is a state senator in Northern Indiana. Uh, but before we get to that, I've had a number of people message me or text me, people that I know, uh, asking for a definition or an explanation of flying sign. So what does that mean? Uh, where does it come from? Uh, it sounds kind of dumb to me. Well, okay, that's that's fair. Uh, you don't understand what it means. So I thought I would take a little bit of time to provide some background. So, for those of you who don't know me, back in 2011, I was 20 years old, I dropped out of school, I bought, I worked all summer, bought a 1991 Ford Club Wagon XL, no seats, windows down the side so it didn't look like a child raper van, Um, still could have passed this one though. Bought this van, kept it at a mire until I finally decided to break the news to my parents, uh, who took it the best way I think any parent could, and uh, rather than scold me and push me out the door even further, they encouraged me and and supported me. Uh, but anyway, so I decided to make my way from here to the West Coast. And through that time, I met a lot of people, met a lot of people I still keep in contact with, uh, some people I'm still trying to forget. Um, And I think down the road on this podcast, I I think I'd like to eventually break it down in maybe a mini-series and uh, go through that. I, I journaled every day, and I think it might be fun to break it down and, and, and tell some of the craziness that unfolded, uh, in those two months. But specifically today, I'd just like to talk about what flying sign means. So I was in Flagstaff, Arizona, uh, currently residing in my van at a Walmart parking lot. Now this Walmart, I, later ended up calling Camp Walmart because there were trucks and um, vans similar to mine, uh, RVs of all classes parking at this Walmart. And no one complained. No one had an issue with it. There was plenty of space in the back, and that's where we all hung out. Uh, This wasn't planned, but it kind of worked in my favor of of knowing that I was... um, in a, in a semi-caring community. So over the course of a few days, I met this couple who went by the name of, uh, the man was named Humble Pie, is the name he gave himself and his wife, Sarah. They took me under their wing in a sense of, of handing me or, or, or requesting my atlas, going through point by point of, of where to stop once I got to California. Now, at the time, I had planned to stop in Encinitas, which is in southern 
California. Uh, but they convinced me otherwise. They convinced me to make my way up the north, up to the north, north of San Francisco, and uh, they showed me the best route possible from where we were at in Flagstaff. And he showed me on the map there was this town known as Santa Clarita, which I later uh, have had had found out it was very very affluent area, very well-off area, uh, at least the part where I ended up at. And he showed me exactly where to go at this mall, drew out what or what part of the parking lot to stand at, what side of the street to stand on, and what to write on a sign. And I hadn't gotten to that point yet of needing to be the one to hold a sign and he had a spare piece of cardboard, probably 36 by 36 inches-ish, and told me exactly what to write. He said, to write, traveling, out of gas, I need a miracle. And that's exactly what I wrote. And then he did something very strange. He, and I, I asked him what to expect, and he let out a sigh and a smile and looked at his wife, and then looked to the roof of his truck, making a gesture to seem like he is looking past the roof and into the sky, and shook his head and said, I'm going to take a beating for this one. But he said, let it be done, like he was casting a spell, let it be done that you'll make no less than $150 in an hour's time. And... I hadn't had that kind of luck yet uh, to be able to pull that kind of money or uh, have someone throw that in my guitar case as I'm playing on the streets of of whatever city I was in at that time. And But I took it, uh, and I was grateful for the advice. So I made my way to Santa Clarita uh, after stopping in Barstow, California, Picked up, a, picked up this man who was, I later learned, severely, severely mentally ill, uh, but was a good guy. And so we stopped. He, he became kind of my friend as I was taking him to Fresno. I was going to drop him off because I was passing right through there. But along the way, we had to stop in Santa Clarita. Now, I had to make a small detour to get there, but I was... Uh, through, through the course of these two months, I had picked up this sense of uh, romanticism of the road and people and even fate. Uh, there are times I call upon that when I need it now in my life, but it, it was it's never been as, as uh, full and rich as it was then. But anyway, so we get to the shopping center. And I believe there was a Meyer or a Walmart or, or something connected to it. And and since I was going to be dropping the name the man's name was Matt, I was going to be dropping Matt off in Fresno the next day, he elected to use the rest of his food stamps to fill up my cooler, which was incredible. So while he's in there, I had my sign ready to go. I put on my nicest pair of camo cargo shorts that I had, cleanest shirt I could find, 
and a crucifix around my neck, hoping that that would uh, appeal to some people. And so there I am standing on this corner, uh, afraid. And within within seconds, it feels like, now looking back, this woman pulls up in a gigantic uh, Cadillac SUV and rolls down the window with two 20s in her hand, looks at me like any stern mother would, and says, no drugs, no alcohol, and hands it to me. And I'm beside myself with, uh, with joy and, and gratitude and um, surprise, just a, a, clearly a surprised look on my face. And she smiled and drove off. And um, this continued to happen, not, not to that high of, of amount, but uh, you know, I get five here, 10 here, couple ones here and I was feeling pretty confident and this was only within the first half hour so next thing I know I see this man walking towards me not in a vehicle just just walking towards me long blonde hair uh, dirty white t-shirt and I'm I'm a little creeped out and I know it's going to be a distraction from, from everyone else that's going to be passing by, which was selfish, but I was standing there to hopefully make a little bit. And if I got some random guy talking to me, that's going to hurt that process. But I'm kind, welcome him and, and, and start talking to him. And he gets to telling me about him and his wife and how they were old uh, aquarium worker, or not aquarium, uh, a giant fish tank for you know, people that like to have their saltwater fish tanks, they were engineers on that and were currently working on software when their roof of their house blew off and then his wife ended up leaving him. Just just a, a, a heartbreaking story. The man's name was Greg. And I start to tell him a little bit about what I had experienced so far and just about the people I've met, good and bad. And he's so engaged and he's so caring about what I have to say to the point where you know 15 minutes easily pass by and I can tell he's got to go and I'm kind of hoping that he would uh but then he asked to pray with me which I'm not a huge man of prayer uh but at that moment I felt compelled to hold his hands and we bowed our heads and, and he said some words uh, about his life and, and about meeting me. And uh, he started to cry. And then I began to cry out of looking back now. I don't know if it was empathy or sympathy or guilt for for turning to this life when... I had a beautiful family back home, uh, and now he's struggling. And after he's done praying, he pulls into his pocket and pulls out a tw- crinkled up 20 and a crinkled up one and an odd number of change, probably 40 some cents. And when you give someone that amount in that fashion, you end up learning that that's all that they have at that time. That's all he had on him. It's not like he was flipping through some fat stack 
and pulled out some crisp bills. It was crinkled. That was all that was in his pocket. And he gave it to me. And I, I, I begged him not to give it to me because I recognized that right away. But, but he did and smiled and just walked away. And all I could think of, again, I'm not a religious man, or at least I don't think I am, but I, I thought of the old Bible story of the people in the church that were giving just so much money to charity and so much and so much. And then one woman came in and just gave two pennies. And I don't, I believe it was Jesus. They asked, well, what? that's a, that's absurd. Why, why would she only give that? That's, that's not fair. Why that's not a charitable heart. And I believe it went, he or she, she is more valued in the eyes of God because this is clearly all that she has. And this is all that that man had. And he gave it to me because I was holding a sign. I was flying a sign, hoping that someone might care for me. And in doing so, I was able to share my story while hearing the story of someone else. And it touched me. And I will never forget it. And um, that's what I hope this podcast becomes, is, is a chance for me to share what I have to say with you and while, while, while giving a, a, the chance to have other people come on and share what they have to say, whether it's heartbreaking or exciting or uh, funny, it's everyone needs to say something to someone else who actually gives a shit. So, changing gears. Today, I have Travis Holdman on the podcast. Again, he is a state senator here in northern Indiana. Uh, little uh, housekeeping here. We did it at the Anytime Fitness, which is the gym that I belong to in Fort Wayne. Uh, I've known him for a year, had no idea of, of his role in the government until we got to talking one day, did some research online. I was like, holy shit, and he's... He's a big deal. And I, you know, walking like, hey, what up, Travis? And, you know, all the while he's <laughs> some state senator. Um, but it was an honor to sit down and talk with him. Uh, there's there's some background noise. You can hear people talking and some some weights clangering together. But uh, I still really appreciate the chance to speak with him. So he titled his episode Missionary Turned Lawmaker as we discussed his life uh, as a missionary in Haiti, which we connected over some certain bills that uh, have have that he's been leading the the charge on, and and even some controversy that he faced uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, you might be able to tell I'm a little nervous talking to him. Uh, uh, I I tried to get my points in while uh, letting him say what he what he wanted to say. Uh, but it, it was a little little nerve-wracking, and, and maybe you can pick up on that a little bit. But please welcome Travis Holdman to the Flying Sign Podcast.
Good okay, go. so thank you again, sir, for coming on. Um, I do have to say, like I said, a little on edge, a little nervous about it, uh, since I've known you now for almost a year, right? Probably, yeah. And just known you as Travis around yeah. the gym, and then... And, did all this research and I felt weird, like almost disrespectful for saying, Hey Travis, how's it going? And now doing all my research on my notes, it feels like, like I shouldn't have been saying that. So it's, it's kind of uh you're okay. Or I know it just is kind of, kind of strange. So after doing the, some of the research I found, you spent some time in Haiti and we were briefly yes. talking about it. And you want to sure. talk sure. a little bit well, about shortly that? after uh, my wife and I were married and this has been many years ago, uh, decades, uh, we spent uh, nearly two years as uh, short-term missionaries in Haiti. Uh, we were uh, about 90 miles from Port-au-Prince, which would be northeast of Port-au-Prince, up in the Artibonite River Valley. You took the ocean road up to St. Mark, and then you cut inland and went up the river valley. So it's Port-au-Prince, I can't remember, was that where the international airport is? Or is yes, that yes. Okay, see, yeah, we flew in... To Port-au-Prince and then flew up to Port-au-Pay. Oh, okay. And that's yeah, I had it backwards. Okay, okay. yeah. Port-au-Prince is the is the capital uh, of Haiti and uh, busy, busy place. Lots of people. Uh, they're not short of uh, of uh, human capital there, but uh, the the country is still continues to struggle and uh, is really a third world country. Uh, and it's hard to imagine that uh, you can leave Miami. Uh, the center of capitalism, right. everything that's good about the United States, all the affluence, uh, and all, and within just a couple hours, you're in a third world country that, uh, as soon as you step off the plane or out the door uh, uh, onto the tarmac, uh, it's uh, you get the smell, uh, you get the sense that you're in a different place oh, than yeah. in the United States. Oh, and, yeah, uh, I couldn't believe it walking out of the airport and... <clears throat> airport was still pretty normal but then as soon as you step outside just everyone trying to get taxi rides and trying to get you to we were all like linked arm in arm trying to push through everybody uh, everybody wants to help yeah uh, and of course if they help then you owe them right uh, for helping right and exactly so, uh, even the guys who don't help sort of get caught up in all of the the flurry of activity and they ask to be paid even if they didn't carry a suitcase right and exactly so, uh, yeah it's uh it's a, it's a different world. So, uh, so any truly. current work there now? Uh, no, I haven't been back now for about three years. Uh, I've been I've gone back probably six or seven times on uh, short one week or two week mission trips, uh, but uh, nothing there now. It's just uh, kind of interesting. I was in New Orleans just last week for a legislative meeting, a National Conference of Insurance Legislators, of which I'm actually the uh, just the immediate past uh, president of the organization. Uh, got in a cab with some other guys, with some of my colleagues, to go to dinner at night. And uh, uh, I can usually tell by the accent of the cab driver if they're Haitian or not. Right, and right. he looked Haitian uh, to me. And uh, uh, I just asked him where he was from, and he said, Haiti. And so that began a, a conversation in Creole. Yeah, you speak a little Creole, yeah. Uh, yeah, pizza, pizza. <laughs> right, uh, right. Moi well, passe j'ai bien. Uh, but... Uh, uh, speak a little bit. I don't remember well, mm -hmm. but uh, we had uh, had a good conversation in Creole, and uh, uh, it was it was good. About uh, all I remember was uh, "Como tu relay." 
which is I think what's your name? I think that's all I all I have left up here. So or como tu rele or Kijan Kijan Rele. Right. Uh, is what's your name? Okay. Kijan Ye, how are you? Uh, 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 and it's it's the strangest thing because when I've gone back to Haiti, uh, as soon as you step off that plane, you you want to speak Creole, and it's just uh, it's a weird weird head thing. Right. Uh, I did six mission trips back in the late 90s uh, in Ghana in West Africa. And uh, it appears that uh, most of the people that are in Haiti and in the West Indies came from that region uh, as slaves from West Africa. As a mm -hmm. matter of fact, uh, a friend and I that were there to do the mission work, <coughs> a leadership training program that we did with John Maxwell's group, Equip, uh, we actually went to a slave fort uh, which was uh, uh, west of Accra, uh, a couple hours drive. And uh, Accra is the capital city of, of Ghana. Five and a half million people uh, live in Accra. I had never even heard of the city yeah, until I was asked to go there to do this uh, leadership training program. And uh, we went there, and it was... Uh, something that's burned in my memory uh, seeing what they did to uh, to folks uh, one of the interesting facts uh, when we were there was uh, the the tour guide we we got there and there was a tour a group forming to, to do a tour and we asked if we could join in and uh, we were the only two white people Caucasians mm -hmm. in the group Blanc <coughs> we were only yeah that the two Blancs uh, there the rest of the folks uh, actually were uh, uh, African-Americans who had gone there and they were basically tracing their roots, okay. uh, looking for their, uh, for their ancestors, trying to, to try to get in touch with, with where they had actually come from. And there, for some reason, they believed it was in that location. And that slave fort, <clears throat> I can't remember the name of, of, the, uh, of the town where the slave fort was, but... Um, uh, it was the sort of the gathering point uh, on the edge, right on the coast, uh, right at a port, and uh, the uh, uh, Dutch actually built the fort uh, back in the fifteen, sixteen hundreds, uh, hundreds of years ago, um, and that's where the slaves would come and uh, gather there. They would hold them until the ship came, and then they would basically marched them all onto a ship, take them through a tunnel, uh, and went through a gate, and the gate, uh, the title of the, the gate was uh, the point of no return. Oh, wow. Once they went through that gate, they would never come back to their homeland again. And uh, we saw an area, a dungeon, where they held folks with very little sunlight, just a couple of skylights. Um, and there was a mark on the wall about three feet uh, up off the floor and uh, the tour guide pointed out to us that that mark on the wall that someone had, had marked with paint uh, was actually uh, what they thought was the original floor. Uh, but when archaeologists came in and were cleaning up the site and doing some digging, they started digging down in the dirt to find out that that mark that was about 30, 36 inches high on the floor was the level of the human waste and oh. debris 
that had built up over decades when uh, slaves had been forced into this little chamber and were held there as a holding cell for them. And uh, they, we were actually standing down on the original floor uh, of, uh, of that dungeon. It was actually a two-room um, area. It had a, a trough uh, through the center of the floor where human waste could, could be washed out. Wow. Um, but over time, that had built up, and they actually were. There was a new floor that had. Uh, and they were living on that floor, <coughs> just having to keep standing. Yeah, and they said that at one time that uh, the last few days that they would be held, there was not room for them to even lay down. They were so crowded they could only stand uh, in that area, and then they would basically uh, move them out down the tunnel, uh, out onto the ship, and. Uh, uh, head for uh, head for the Western Hemisphere, uh, but one of the interesting points is the the tour guide uh, asked us. He said, uh, "How many of you have seen the movie Roots uh, back in I think that was back in the 70s, mm-hmm. 80s?" And of course, most everybody had seen had seen the movie. And he said uh, there was uh, an error uh, and a fallacy in that movie because it showed uh, European. Uh, sailors coming on board chasing uh, Africans through the jungle uh, and capturing them with nets and ropes and those kind of things. He said that most of the people that had come to that slave fort that were sold as slaves had been slaves for many, many years. Uh, A tribal region and uh, a chief or a king of a tribe uh, had slaves himself. Uh, because he had conquered other people and other tribes and made slaves of those people. And if he didn't want those people or he had too many slaves himself, then he would sell them to the white Europeans to be exported to the Western Hemisphere. So it was already part of culture. It was was already part of a a slave culture that they were in. But it was just, I mean, the inhumane treatment is unbelievable. Of course, they had on display all the shackles and uh, all the tools of punishment that they used. Uh, one area that's not much larger than this room, perhaps maybe a 10 by 10, 12 by 12 room that was just carved out of stone uh, with a, uh, a little door that you had to stoop down to get into. And that was the, the holding cell if uh, there were slaves who were disruptive or were ill. Uh, and basically the goal was we'll put them there and we'll just let them die. And uh, uh, I'll never forget we were in this room and it was it was so warm uh, already that day in Ghana which is much closer to the equator uh, it was a hot hot day and uh, we got in that room and I kid you not the temperature must have been 120 degrees in that room and and uh, the tour guide is telling about the anguish that went on in that room and there was a uh, African-American gal standing next to me and she started to weep and just broke down and sobbed and uh, uh, I said do you need to go outside and she said yes and uh, I took her outside and just stayed out I, I thought I can't I couldn't tolerate could the you heat. pick up on that that feeling and oh my room. goodness it was it they was say some, some rooms like <clears> that <throat> like in uh, like Auschwitz for example like you feel that that anguish that it from the past I mean yeah you're feeling hot yourself but you feel the 
the death of the past. Yeah, just the, just the emotion uh, was uh, was unbelievable, and uh, it was just that sense that I had to get out of there, and uh, so I took the took the lady out, and uh, and uh, it, but it must have been 110 degrees in that room with wow. with no air moving, and. Uh, 10, 12 people gathered in there, and uh, it was just more than I could take, yeah. uh, to be honest with you. Yeah, I can't imagine. Um, well, it's hard to hard to move on from that. <laughs> but, yeah, to, to move on uh, then, like, like <clears throat> I said before we got um, on air here, to get into your political life mm-hmm. and, and kind of talk about some of the uh, most recent state bills, mm-hmm. and I just, just wanted you to educate me. I, I, a lot of people... Um, maybe my age or even younger, uh, or maybe even older, we're, we're in this political world, and especially with the most recent election, it was everywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. The immediate attention was, was constant, which mm-hmm. I, and is, is crucial and is important, uh, but sometimes the details and some of the smaller scale things are, are often overlooked, and I thought maybe we could go through some of the uh, more recent state bills um, like, for example, I found one in my research, the um, uh, 276, about the, the pilot program for the pre-K expansion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Uh, sure. sure. What, what I saw, it, had, it has been passed and now has been approved for $3 million, correct? Well, it goes over, it's passed the Senate, so now it goes to the House. Okay. And uh, the uh, coincidentally, the House had a pre-K bill. Uh, uh, pre-kindergarten bill for four-year-olds uh, and they sent their bill over to the Senate and we sent our bill over to the House. Uh, we don't particularly like the House bill. They don't, some of the folks in the House actually like the Senate bill better, but the author obviously of the House bill doesn't like the Senate bill. Okay. So, so it, just, sorry to, to interrupt, but sure. real quick, how does that work then? So you ha- the Senate has their bill that has to be approved by the House. The House has their bill that mm-hmm. has to then be approved by the Senate. Uh, and then it becomes the, the, the state bill? Well, or? what happens is that one of those bills will survive. One will okay. go away. Uh, and so we'll see how this, how this plays out, who has the ace card in their hand. Gotcha. So uh, any bill that the Senate <coughs> puts together, the House has to put together a comparable bill? Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, because uh, there may be a no bill in, in the other chamber uh, at all, and so we send them that bill, and it goes through the committee process and the hearing process and amending process, just like the bill would have done originally. So what's going to happen uh, most likely uh is that the House bill that has been sent to the Senate, uh, it received a hearing uh, this past uh, Wednesday, uh, two days ago, in the Senate Education Committee. And uh, it will be up uh, for a second hearing uh, this coming Wednesday. And the chair of the committee, who happens to be Senator Dennis Cruz uh, from this area as well, uh, he chairs that committee, and he told me that he's going to strip that language out of the House bill and put my language in okay. in the House bill. Uh, the House, the Senate bill that's in the House has not been scheduled for a hearing. The, the uh, chair of the Education Committee in the House called me yesterday and uh, told me that he's going to give the bill a hearing, but he doesn't have it scheduled yet. Uh, 
he is the author of the House bill that's in the Senate that's going to get stripped out and replaced with Senate language. Okay. And the Senate bill has been sent to uh, Representative Tony Cook. I picked him to send the bill to. He's a farmer uh, school administrator uh, from uh, the Tipton area, Kokomo Tipton area. Okay. And uh, he likes the Senate version better but he's gonna have to get it through the Education Committee in the House where the author of the House bill is also the chairman of the committee. So the bill's gonna be hard, so it's gonna be tough. So uh, there's gonna be two bills that are going to basically, most likely flip-flop the language, um, which means both bills get sent to conference committee. And then uh, most likely what's going to happen is uh, Senator David Long, who's our uh, President Pro Tem of the Senate, and Brian Bosma, who's the Speaker of the House and the leadership team of the two, uh, will um, make a decision as to which bill is going to survive, whether it's going to be the Senate version or the House version. Okay. Um, then there will be conferees appointed, uh, which most likely will be myself and the chair of the House uh, Education Committee. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there will be... Uh, because it's just the way the system works, there will be uh, three Republicans and one Democrat uh, who will be assigned to the conference committee. And uh, so you have to come up with an agreement of what the bill's gonna look like uh, before all four people will sign off on it. So you have to have a bipartisan approach because you're gonna have to have Democrats and Republicans signing the conference committee report because the bill can't move forward until uh, uh, you get an agreement from both chambers and both parties that uh, you can live with the bill. And that's what I was just going to touch on. This <coughs> seems this issue, um, unlike some others, is seems like a very bipartisan issue to where there shouldn't be a lot of opposition to it. And so I, being so your role right now is what I found was a system majority whip. And so how does that work kind of across the aisle uh, with the Democrats and working together to get everyone on the same page? Because I know one of the biggest, from what I have recognized in Mm -hmm. the past election, there's a lot of uh, polarization Mm -hmm. right now. And how, in your role, how how do you work to get everyone on the same page and try and get some work done and get some approval on some things that help everybody? Sure. Well, uh, the Indiana House and the Indiana Senate is not much like Congress, uh, which operates in Washington, D.C. Uh, folks would be uh, pleasantly surprised to know that in the last session, uh, 90% of the bills, I think it was actually 91% of the bills that passed the Senate uh, last in the last session uh, had uh, bipartisan support uh, for, that, for that legislation. Uh, over 60% of the bills that were passed in the Indiana Senate were unanimous votes. Wow, that's uh, good to hear. That. Uh, they don't do that in Washington, D.C. Right. Uh, there's too much partisan bickering and, right. and positioning. And uh, we will vehemently disagree with folks from the podium uh, when we call a bill down and we go to the podium to speak. But uh, when we're done arguing the bill, we shake hands, uh, pat each other on the back, uh, give folks a hug, 
and uh, ask how their family's doing. Okay. Um, so it's uh, it's a much different atmosphere. So on uh, on an outside perspective, looking in to like you just said. So yeah. So is everyone? You're all just peers at the end of the day, and yeah, you may disagree. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's kind of nice to hear that you shake hands, ask about each other, and when you you know through the day, through the working hours, you know you're might be button heads and and trying to write in your language to what sure. they have written, and sure. I'm sure it's may not always be easy <clears throat> to shake each other's hands, but well, and you've got to we have to be careful because uh, uh, the the balance in the Senate is uh, 41 to 9, uh, 41 Republicans and 9 Democrats. And uh, you're not going to get anywhere uh, if you lord that over that small minority right. of people. Um, and you just can't be disrespectful or haughty about uh, how you do your work. Right. And uh, you've got to reach out to those people. And, uh, well, and if nothing else, I feel like those nine people may offer maybe a, a different perspective that maybe absolutely yeah that absolutely. might be crucial to some language in in certain bills. And it keeps the majority in check, right? You know. Uh, and the other issue that you have is when you have forty-one folks of the same party, you're going to have divergent opinions. Yeah. Uh, and so you'll sp- see somewhat uh, in the caucus of forty-one people, you'll have two groups emerge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this in this particular case with the pre-K bill, um, you had a group of Republicans who don't want to have anything to do with it. Really? Uh, they think it's the responsibility of the parent uh, to raise the child and to teach the child, to get the child to kindergarten. Uh, well, if we lived in a perfect world, that would be that'd be okay. But we don't live in a perfect world. Right. Uh, we have a, a terrible epi- epidemic of. Uh, uh, drug addiction uh, in our state and uh, kids are being affected by that uh, they have parents who are just absent uh, we continue to see uh, an increase of uh, court involvement with kids that are removed from the home because of abuse and neglect and uh, on average over the last four or five years we've seen about a 20 percent annual increase in the number of kids that are becoming wards of the court in the state of Indiana. We call wow. them chins, children in need of services. Uh, and so uh, most of that increase has been due to uh, drug addiction. And, uh, and I'm assuming that's primarily in the public school system? Public school system and kids that haven't even gotten to schools yet uh, where, uh, where we're trying to, trying to impact the other piece, if I can go back just to yeah, pre-K, uh, the pre-K bill, uh, we have a, uh, a huge difference in what the bill looks like, uh, who's being serviced, at what income level do we service uh, those kids that are four years old. Um, both of them contain a longitudinal study to track that child through the school system so we know if this pre-K experiment is actually working or not. Um, but uh, the other big issue are the money, the monies that are attached to it. Uh, uh, I had originally asked for $22 million uh, in funding, which would be $10 million to continue the longitudinal study in the five counties uh, where the program began two years ago. Uh, the governor wants to expand the program to include uh, an additional amount, uh, actually uh, an additional five counties, uh, 
I have some some disagreement uh, with that with that plan because we can't. I don't think we can get to capacity to just include five more counties. And so what my bill says is that we will make any program that has the requirements that meets the requirements uh, and can find a 10% match uh, for funding uh, in their local community uh, can participate in the program regardless of which county that you're in. Okay. Uh, currently, it's five counties, uh, Lake, uh, Allen, Vandenberg and Marion County and Jackson County. Okay. So you have so four spread out quite a bit, then. right? But you have four urban counties and one rural county. Well, we're fearful that we can't get uh, $10 million worth of kids in a two year period. If we go to the next five counties, because they're going to be significantly more rural than what the other counties are and to have eligible providers that can put a program together because there are certain guidelines that you have to follow in what we call uh, Paths to Quality, which is a certification program that we adopted and codified about three years ago. Uh, and I worked to, to try to get that done with daycare providers in okay. the state. So you have to be a level three or level four uh, daycare provider, uh, and you have to have this 10% match. Uh, that And a level three provider just means that you have all the health and safety uh, requirements in place. Um, but then you also have to have an academic component uh, that meets the guidelines that the Department of Education has set out in their uh, uh, foundational guidelines for pre, uh, pre-kindergarten programs. So you mentioned earlier about the, with these five counties being mostly urban and mm-hmm. rural, mostly mm-hmm. urban, but my parents are both educators. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother is in Marion County IPS schools, and uh, what Bless she's... Yeah, yeah, she's she's been there 26 years <clears throat> and, and worked very hard. But um, she, what she has noticed and seen, there's there's a correlation between the highly urban and highly rural families of uh, that, that may re- did you say uh, chin the children chins yeah, children th- in need of services to where sometimes though both of those completely on different sides of the spectrum, those are the children that often go home to parents that may not be able to even read themselves and they mm-hmm. have those drug addictions and so it's um, I think it'd be difficult to expand past that I, I guess to, to focus on those urban and rural areas I guess is crucial sure. for, for this to to continue and target those kids who may not uh, be in an environment where they have books at home yeah. and um, families that even sure can wake up to take them to to school in yeah, the first I've, place. I've, I've talked to dozens of educators about uh, pre-kindergarten uh, programs, and uh, I have yet to find one educator that says that it doesn't work, uh, but it needs to be implemented uh, with the kids at most risk. Uh, so we have set in the Senate bill, we've set that uh, income level at 127% of the poverty level, which for a family of four, uh, would be about thirty-one thousand dollars, which isn't isn't much money when you think of a, right. a mother with three children. Right. Uh, she's most likely going to be receiving other types of assistance, probably SNAP, food stamp uh, benefits, uh, TANF, uh, temporary assistance uh, to needy families. Uh, she's likely going to be receiving other types of assistance, uh, and we will have enough kids uh, for the for the second uh, 
group of, of, of kids and that additional funding for the expansion of the program uh, to keep it at 127%. We can spread that out uh, so that we pick up more of the poorest kids in the state, regardless of where they are in the state, not limited to five or six counties. Uh, we can pick up more poor kids. The House bill actually has that level at about 270% uh, of the poverty level, which for a family of four would be close to $70,000 uh, on an annual basis. Wow. And I just, I, I just disagree that we need to uh, change the experimental group because I actually I think it's going to question the integrity of our, our results of our longitudinal study if we increase that income level of eligible kids uh, rather than keep it steady right. uh, at, that, at that lower level because that's, those are the kids who need it the most. Right. And that's what educators are telling me that uh, universal pre-K is not the answer. Florida and Georgia, a couple other states have a universal pre-K program. It's very expensive, uh, very costly uh, to do a, a universal pre-K, which says every family can send their child to a pre-kindergarten program at four years old to get right. them warmed up for kindergarten. Um, everybody doesn't need that. You know, my grandchildren don't need uh, the state's assistance for a pre-kindergarten program. Right. Uh, but if it was offered, then the state would sell to pay for that's it. That's right. right. Uh, and I just don't, uh, I just don't think that's the best use of our tax dollars. I think we need to focus on the kids who are at most risk. Uh, we're already finding Purdue University has been contracted with to do the research and to, and attract these kids. So after two years of the program, because the the we have kids who are now in the first grade since we started the program uh, and the control group uh, basically we're measuring the experimental group of kids against the control group of kids and we're finding that the kids uh, have uh, uh, they're learning to read quicker uh, they they have uh, higher what we call executive skills which are skills of, of uh, basically interpersonal communication getting along with other kids uh, fewer discipline uh, referrals uh, to the school principal or, or misbehavior in the classroom, which is huge because right. if a child misbehaves in the classroom, not only do they deprive themselves of the educational value for that amount of time that the teacher spends just trying to get them to settle down uh, or send to the principal's office and sit the rest of the day, which has no educational value, uh, the other 20-some students are deprived of the teacher's time right, because 25% exactly. of the time is being taken with this child that's causing the trouble in the classroom. Most, most classrooms still have I still remember the, the kid that, that always got, got the in attention trouble. That's and right. you have to stop. Um, and then the other, the other piece that we're seeing as a result of, of what we're doing with this experimental group is um, uh, I think 55% uh, of the parents uh, – we're saying that they were able to increase their work hours uh, or get a job. 33% um, of those parents uh, are now involved in job training or furthering their education. And so it not only has an effect on the child to help them, but it also helps the mother that's at home with that child because right. she's able to go out and get a job herself, increase her work hours, or go back to school or get job training. Uh, which is sort of a uh, tertiary effect uh, or secondary effect even that uh, 
we're looking at that we think is going to be very beneficial. Some long-term studies that have been done. There are folks who will say in the, by the third grade there's a washout that you can't see a difference for a child that's been to pre-K. But there's no program like what we're doing anywhere else in the country where we're just targeting this poorest group of kids uh, to try to give them an advantage. But and, and by when you say target the uh, a certain group of kids, is that you say it can't be statewide or because of the the money associated with that? So is it how do you focus on the kids that need it most? Do you just base it on the area of kids that would need it most, like a super uh, poor areas to where the schools in that area would then get that that program, or is it? It, it would be with any program that uh, in any community, and we get a lot of cooperation from United Way and Chambers of Commerce uh, in all of our communities. Uh, for instance, I just I talked with folks from Marion, Indiana, just this week. Uh, Grant County Chamber had their their annual legislative dinner in in Indianapolis, and a bunch of their members. 30, 40 of their members come to Indianapolis. We had a, I had dinner with them, uh, and the other legislators that represent Grant County are a part of it. And uh, they said they're ready for it. They have a program that will qualify as uh, one of the state's pre-K programs uh, in this pilot project. And they were not eligible because they weren't in the right county before. But uh, they have the 10% match raised uh, they have a program that's run by actually by uh, the school system that would qualify uh, for the program and they go out and find the kids from these low-income families and bring those kids in and p- enroll them in the pre-k program okay okay uh, to be respectful of your time I just want to move on to just one last um, question that I have and this the research that I did on it uh, it was hard to find that uh, some of the articles weren't written the best to where I completely knew what was going on, but this was last year uh, in response to Senate Bill 100 and Senate Bill 344. Could you speak a little, <laughs> if, if you would, a little bit about that? I, I tried to find some information about that, and it was kind of confusing to me, at least, kind of what went the civil down. rights, the right. civil rights bill. Uh huh. If you could speak a little bit about that, sure. Well, uh, I consider myself to be a uh, evangelical Christian conservative, uh, and uh, I just felt in the post-refera debate that went on the Religious Freedom uh, Protection Act uh, that uh, at the time Governor Pence got wound up in and several state leaders, I just thought that there was a way for us to uh, extend civil rights uh, in Indiana civil rights laws uh, to the uh, gay, lesbian, transgender uh, community, which says that they get equal treatment for uh, employment uh, and housing, uh, and that we can't we can't discriminate against those folks who choose that lifestyle. But in return for that, in return for that there would be immunity for folks uh, that practice their faith that say that lifestyle is incompatible uh, with what we believe and what we teach. And, and if I read it right, it was for for businesses with less than six employees could practice that? Or is that 
Did I read that right? Yes. Okay. Yes, there were several amendments, and I think at one time we even got to fewer than 20, uh, that if you were fewer than 20, actually you were exempt from the law altogether. So it would only be uh, for those that had 20 or more employees uh, that, that would be affected by, by the law, uh, which meant that you couldn't discriminate against someone uh, for housing uh, or education or uh, employment. Uh, and you got a lot of pushback from oh that my. on both sides. You were trying <clears throat> to do right for civil rights, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't all the way for the LGBT community, but it wasn't um, in line with a lot of the uh, maybe Christian values that some of these, that these, and even on the, the Republican side, a lot of uh, Republican groups felt almost betrayed almost by, by the bill and, and didn't feel represented. And so I, I don't know, I felt for you reading that. I guess I wasn't <laughs> aware of all that. And Yeah, um, I tried. I tried to find common ground because I thought there was, uh, I thought we could find some common ground to extend civil rights to the LGBT community, but at the same time guarantee uh, religious liberty uh, for folks uh, that uh, in, the, in the faith community. Uh, but uh, the folks in the LGBT community did not want the exemptions uh, for the religious community, and the folks in in some of the religious community and not necessarily religious community, I should say, uh, in the political community, uh, did not want uh, any civil rights extended to the LGBT community. And I couldn't find, I couldn't find that middle ground. Um, and it, it, it got to the point uh, where uh, transgenders became the, the real issue uh, because there's a lot of confusion about what a transgender is and this whole uh, bathroom use right. issue became a part of the discussion. And uh, so I thought, well, uh, to satisfy some in my caucus, I would take transgender folks out of the bill. And you got a lot of pushback for taking the T out uh, of LGBT. And then because I did that, uh, the folks on the far left said, if you take the T out, we can't support the bill. The folks on the far right were saying, I'm not going to support the bill unless you take the T out. And so um, uh, it, it just became an, an absolutely impossible task. And I likened it uh, the, the day that I, uh, I uh, uh, passed on the bill, which meant on second reading, uh, on my second reading deadline, I had to call the bill down. Uh, for second reading uh, for amendments uh, or else the bill was going to die. And uh, I passed on the bill when the bill was called down. I passed and then asked for a, a point of personal privilege, which meant that if it's granted to me, I can go to the mic and speak about actually anything I want to talk about. But I basically went to the mic and said, you know, there were a number of years ago we took our family to uh, uh, Zion National Park. And uh, Zion National Park, you're actually down in the canyon. If you've never been there, it's in southern mm -hmm. Utah, a beautiful place. It's kind of the opposite of the Grand Canyon. Instead of being at the top of the canyon looking down in, you're at the bottom of the canyon looking up. Okay. Um, the Virgin River flows through, uh, through the park and through the canyon. And uh, you can walk up the stream in the canyon 
and the walls of the canyon get so close it's called the narrows and uh, you can actually reach out and touch the walls of the canyon with both hands if you have a wingspan as much as I do uh, and look up and for about 10 minutes of a day the sun actually shines in that canyon Uh, but it's about 400 feet to the top of that canyon at that point where you can reach out and touch the walls and you're standing about waist deep in water Uh, and I went to the mic and told the story about being at Zion National Park, and it was not unlike standing with my arms against those walls, wow. hoping that the walls would actually move, and they weren't going to move. Right. Uh, they were carved in solid rock, and the folks in the LGBT community were not going to give, and the folks uh, over here in the, in the far-right community uh, were not going to give. And uh, there was no political solution to to the debate. And uh, it was shortly after that that uh, North Carolina passed their bathroom bill and took the spotlight spotlight off Indiana. And uh, we were sort of saved right. uh, by all that. <laughs> right. <laughs> by all that. Well, just reading that, I I try and be as I was raised in a, a more left household. My brother, one of my brothers has recently come out as gay. And so I, I tend to, to lean a little bit more on that side. But reading that, and I think it was really admirable for taking that stand and, and, and fighting for civil rights. And as a evangelical Christian, like knowing that we are God's children mm-hmm. and, and we all are, and we're all brothers and sisters. That's how I was. I was raised Catholic and that's, that's how I was has taught as well and I just part of me wonders how the history books will look back on not just that instance but on this time of the uh, battle for LGBT civil rights and and what side of history will we all fall on Mm -hmm. when when it is I like to think it's going to be the uh, something that is just part of our culture and I, I feel like there are uh, cultural evolutions now to where the uh, LGB part um, um, is is accepted more that the transgendered part of of that is I think still difficult for most people um, if they're not exposed to it a lot and I think uh, there will come a, come a time where it won't be um, but I think that was a good step, at least in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to take time, but the history books, I think, will favor that. I like to think that it, it is a, a step in the right direction, uh, even though it it wasn't um, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty, and uh, and the timing just wasn't right. Right. Um, uh, the timing wasn't right for it, and uh, we'll see. Uh, I think. Uh, history will tell but I think uh, we we will get to a point and, and part of my concern as well Joe was the fact that uh, if we don't make this decision and sort of step out and say this is the how we're going to do it in Indiana to extend the civil rights but grant protections uh, for the faith community uh, and the folks uh, the religious community if we don't do that uh, my fear is that uh, people in black robes in Washington, D.C. are going to make that decision for us or somewhere else. Um, And there will be no exemptions for religious liberty 
if that decision is made. Right. It's going to be you will extend these rights. So if if that was passed beforehand, then then it's kind of grandfathered in. Well, it's less likely that it would get to that to that gotcha. question because oh, okay. we would all be living at peace with each other. Right. And decide that that we have figured out a way to get along. So rather than um, making it just a blanket for everybody, if most states have their own form of that in place, then it doesn't have to go to the extreme level. It's it's less likely that somebody's going to raise an issue with it, right? Uh, and make a, make an issue out of it. So. Okay. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I was. It, it took a lot to to try and piece it together. I know some people. One article I read did not. Open up very with kind <laughs> words, imagine it. You know, I, after reading it, it uh, couldn't have been easy. So yeah. um, it was it was a it was tough to thread that needle, and I couldn't do it. Right. Uh, I've been that was my eighth session, wow. and I thought surely I can figure out a way to make this happen, but uh, but uh, I couldn't I couldn't do it I couldn't do it. Right. So okay. Well, hey, I'll uh, I'll wrap this up. I want to, like I said, be respectful of your time, and I sure. do really appreciate it. But like I said before. If you could uh, title this episode with you know with one to four words with what we've talked about, uh, just kind of take ownership for yourself. Doesn't have to be anything crazy. Um, probably uh, missionary turned lawmaker. All right. Okay, that sounds great. <laughs> All right. Well, that's what it is. So missionary turned lawmaker with State Senator Travis Holman. So I appreciate everybody, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you.